0: If you would, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I've entitled this morning's sermon, Advancing the Gospel in Adversity. Advancing the Gospel in Adversity. We've all experienced adversity to some extent in life. I went to Merriam-Webster's dictionary to, to see the definition of what is adversity. How do, how do they define adversity And this is what came up. It is a state or instance of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune. A state or instance of serious or continued difficulty or misfortune. Pretty obvious. There's not a positive connotation to adversity, right? Pretty negative term, adversity. And yet, the text we're looking at this morning... It's quite clear that adversity can actually positively contribute to the most important cause in all of life, which is the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's good news. That God leverages all things for good. And as we continue in this very joyful letter of Philippians, We're met with a paradox. The paradox is this that there is great joy to be experienced by advancing the gospel in adversity, specifically. Let's keep that in mind. And, And I want to read this passage again and just let it marinate and meditate on it till it's in your bones so that we can apply it in our lives. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ with envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. May 15th, 2019 was my first day of work at Providence Church. And so I I get in the car and I'm heading to work early. I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. This is going to be a great first day of work, working for this church that I love. And about, I don't know, a mile away from the church, I'm about to meet with my boss for the first time, the executive pastor. Our first meeting, I get a blowout. My, my tire just completely just erupts. And, uh, and so I pull over the car, obviously. I call AAA. God bless AAA. so grateful for that ministry. And, uh, and so I'm waiting on AAA. And man, my, my boss was so kind. I let him know. I was like, man, I'm so sorry. I was, I was, I was early. I was on my way. And, and here I am on the side of the road. He actually came like a good pastor and you know, met me right there in my tribulation. And we're waiting. And, and so I, I'm not, I'm just going to confess this. In that moment, I'm waiting on my boss to show up. I'm waiting on AAA to show up. And I'm literally going, are you kidding me? Like Lord, I am I am about to serve you. I'm, I'm starting to serve you in ministry in this church, and and you have you sidelined me, right? Before my first meeting, and so my my flesh came out. I'm just being honest with you. That's how I felt in that moment. And then immediately the Holy Spirit's like, I might re-correct that, you know? I might adjust your your thought life there. And so I was like, mm, sorry. Okay, obviously this is in your plan today. So here we are. I'm going to try to honor you here. Haven't had a good start so far, but I'm going to try from from now on to just serve you here. So the triple A guy shows up. In the back of his truck is a skeleton. Not a real skeleton, okay? But one of those like Halloween, you know, those decoration skeleton things It's in the back, which is weird. It's May. Like, what is that doing back there, you know? I didn't even ask that, but I, you know, I am looking at this skeleton and I go, well, there's my gospel bridge right there. I mean, thanks for the layup, Lord. You know, this is easy. Let's evangelize this man. And, um, so he, he, you know, gets out of his truck and I said, hey, hey man, your friend's awfully quiet back there. Uh, something like that, you know, something like, why is your friend so lazy? Is he going to help you with the, the tires? What's the deal? But, uh, you know, I also stated the obvious, all jokes aside. I, I said, we're all going to end up just like that guy in the back of your truck. At some point, we're all going to die, aren't we? I said, yeah, that's true. And I just asked him questions. I'm just peppering him with questions. I love questions. Jesus said, from the mouth the heart speaks. I want to get the mouth moving to know what kind of heart I'm working with here. So I'm just asking questions. You can ask people whatever you want. They might not answer, but you can ask them anything. And i found that over the years, I'm shocked with what they will respond to and what they're willing to dialogue about. So I asked him, I said, what's the purpose of your life? So, what do you think happens when you die? What must a person do to enter into heaven, into glory, and to live with God forever in paradise? What, what, what must you do to enter heaven? I asked him, are you worthy to enter into the presence of a holy God? I showed him that he wasn't through the Ten Commandments. I reminded him that Neither he nor me nor any of us are worthy to go before a holy God. And then I told him what Jesus Christ did so that sinners could be in the presence of God forever and have eternal life, forgiven of their sin at the cross. And I'm going to tell you, no one put on sackcloth and ashes that day and just repented of their sin and, you know, believed in Christ and joined a church and was baptized and it didn't happen. But God allowed us to put a pebble in that man's shoe that I'm confident is still not out today if he's walking around somewhere. That was an opportunity to advance the gospel in adversity. I praise God for that. You and I have more opportunities to advance the gospel in the midst of our adversity maybe than in anything else. It speaks very clearly to the people around you that when you're in the midst of suffering and yet you have joy, joy from the Holy Spirit, that you have hope in the midst of your troubles, that there's something different about you, and what an opportunity to explain what it is, the steadfast love of God, the steadfast joy of Jesus Christ our Lord. This passage, and really my first point for us in this passage, which speaks of advancing the gospel in adversity, is this. We can advance the gospel in the world through our, adversary, our, our adversity. Advancing the gospel in the world. Point one, verse twelve. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So, what happened to Paul? Let's let's review. Well, it was adversity. First, he was arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel. Then he was sent to Rome as a prisoner in chains, awaiting trial, to appeal before Caesar. On the way there, he was shipwrecked at sea. We see this in Acts 27. What's crazy about this situation is through all this adversity, what was God doing? He was making himself known as the one and only true God. To who? The sailors who were with Paul. The prisoners who were also there with Paul in chains. The centurion guard who had Paul in captivity. The soldiers who were under the centurion's leadership. And even the native people on the island of Malta. God was not slowed down by these difficulties. The gospel was moving. It was moving in power. And then once he arrived in Rome, did things get better? No, he's put in house arrest in Rome. Adversity really served to advance the gospel for Paul. And the word advance, prokopen, just means progress. It means exactly what you think it means. It means to move something forward, to push the kingdom of God forward. It is offensive in the sense that it is advancing forward, it makes me think of one of the greatest movies of all time, Mel Gibson, The Patriot. And towards the end of that movie, the colonial army is getting beaten pretty badly. It's, looking, it's not looking good. And they start to retreat actually from the British. And what does Mel Gibson do? He sees what's going on. And he runs and he grabs that flag out of the coward's hand. And he does, he has a sword that's somewhere else, but he's got a flag in his hand and he's running forward into the adversity. He's going straight into the battle and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, Hold! Hold the line! Hold! And what that man was not saying was this he was not saying, Stay put, he was saying, Stay together and advance. That's what we need in the church. We need men and women to hold the line. Because courage is contagious in the church. We need men and women to, to determine in their hearts, in their souls, that Jesus Christ is worthy of all of their life and that they would take his flag, and that they would run through the adversity so that other heads, both in the church and outside the church, see something different going on, swimming upstream when everything else is going downstream. That's what we need. We tend to think of adversity, trials, tribulations, suffering as impediments and barriers to achieving our goals, which they are, by the way, to achieving our goals, to achieving our plans. They are. I'll give you a couple examples, but you can fill in the blank. You get injured, you're in the middle of uh, preparing for a marathon. I don't know why you would do that, but you know, it's, uh, if, you, if you were to do that, so to speak. You might not run the rates. Like, you might not get to go and run. You, you might go and run, but you might not get the time that you had originally set your hopes on. Might be a little longer than you anticipated. You know, you want to buy a home this year. But then you have a medical bill that destroys all hopes of that, all the capital's gone, anything you would have put down for a down payment, gone. Well, guess what? You probably don't get to buy a home now. That's a reality. Adversity can stop us from achieving our plans, from achieving our goals. But friends, listen closely to me. Your trials, your suffering, your adversity have zero. Zero impact on God's plans. They have zero power in stopping God from fulfilling His purposes on earth, in and through you. We closed last week with the first question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of a human being's life, the answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Did trials prevent us from glorifying God? No. It just changes the context in which we glorify God. You can still glorify God, it's just not in the context that you would have preferred. You see that? Does adversity prevent us from enjoying God forever? No. Why? Because God hadn't changed. Your circumstances changed. Your situation changed. You, it might be less comfortable. There might be discomfort, but God hasn't changed. So you can continue to enjoy him, even though you might not be able to enjoy the things you used to be able to enjoy in this world. What about the great commandments? This is God's will for our life, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Does a trial prevent you from loving God? No. No. Why? He doesn't change. God is no less lovely today than he was yesterday. No matter what has happened in our lives, we can continue to grow in love for God as we grow in awareness of his goodness and his love for us in Christ. Does it prevent you from loving your neighbor? Nope. Now, I will say this It might tempt you to not love your neighbor. A trial, adversity might provoke you to be unloving to your neighbor, but it does not control you. It has no dominion over you. It cannot make you be unloving to your neighbor. That's your choice. What about the Great Commission? Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations. Does your adversity prevent you from fulfilling the Great Commission? Let me simplify the Great Commission for you this morning. To make disciples, what does that even mean? There's so many, there's a lot of chitter-chatter about different well, what is discipleship? This, that, the other. All it all it is is helping someone follow Jesus Christ. That's it. Helping them trust him, helping them step in line with his commands and his teaching, helping them follow Jesus. That's that's all discipleship is. So does the adversity, does that prevent us from helping people follow Christ? No. As a matter of fact, we follow a suffering Savior, don't we? If anything, our suffering, our seasons of suffering and adversity, we're showing people, we're modeling how to follow the suffering, suffering Savior well and faithfully. It might enhance your discipleship that those around you are looking to you and they're seeing a man or a woman who's following the suffering Savior and they're doing it well. They're continuing to rejoice in Christ even in the midst of sorrow. God is not surprised by the trials in your life right now. He is sovereign over every single one of them. He is leveraging every single one of them. What about this that one too? Well, how could he that one too? And I might not have an answer. What is God doing in this? There, there seems no profit in that. And I'm telling you that the word of God says he is working all things together for good. That's Romans 8:28 and 29. It's so familiar to us at times, but listen to it and believe it, and we know. We don't hope. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good that he's doing in you and I. In the midst of our suffering, he's sovereign and he's sanctifying us. He is causing you and your adversity. He is causing me and my adversity to, the alarms are going off and we, we're having to turn to God and we're having to cry out to God. We're having to cling to God. We're having to look to Him. We're having to behold Him and in beholding Him, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, we are becoming more like Him, being transformed in the same image. Praise God. From one degree of glory to the next, it says, therefore, we can truly count it all joy, my brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds. Paul's adversity was advancing the gospel in the world. And Paul mentions right here in verse 13, very specifically, in what way, in what context. So look at verse 13. It says, for Paul... It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Who is the imperial guard? They're the most elite soldiers in Rome at the time. These guys are like the personal bodyguards to Caesar. They're like the secret service who protect the United States president. That's who the gospel is advancing to these guards they lived in the governor's residence they had influence on the emperor they had influence on his thoughts they had influence on his decisions and i'm going to just paint a picture for you okay imagine one of those guys tells the emperor uh, emperor take two steps to your left i'm taking two steps to the left right <laughs> why because these guys are watching over my body they're protecting me so they they have the emperor's ear Guess who has their ear? Paul. How? Through imprisonment. Paul was chained to these men. Now, if you've ever been to Disney World, you've, you've been in those long lines, and uh, you kind of get a little bored, You're, you know, twiddling your thumbs. You're like, what, what am I going to do as I wait to get on the, this new Avatar ride or whatever it is? And, and I just imagine for a second being an unbeliever in line with the Apostle Paul at Disney World. I mean, he can't stop talking about Jesus Christ. You're either going to get saved or you're going to get annoyed. But you could get out of line. These guys were chained to the apostle, there's no escape from him. They, They were more prisoners than Paul to a certain extent. And this is very significant to grasp that in God's sovereignty, the gospel was being heard by unbelievers, the Imperial Guard specifically, taken to more unbelievers because they had been with a lot of prisoners, but they'd never been with Paul. They knew Paul was different, but they also knew why. He was a prisoner of Christ. What's interesting is that we know that there were some conversions In the Imperial Guard. We don't know how many, but we know there were some. The end of this letter concludes with this Chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 21 22. Paul says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. There were conversions within Caesar's household. How? An Imperial Guard. This is outstanding. This is the sovereignty of God and salvation of those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. He is fulfilling what he promised. He is carrying out what he did at the very beginning before the beginning. God is sovereign over salvation. From a human perspective, the imprisonment of Paul would seem to be putting the emergency brake on the car of the gospel witness going forward in Paul's ministry. It was not. These guards would have never sought out this strange preacher named Paul. So God sought them out by chaining them to Paul. Paul was taken captive, but the gospel was free. And it reminds us of Paul's words in, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 9 I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound, just not. It's free, it's moving, in power, in adversity. Again, I tell you, these men knew that Paul was different, but they knew why. It says that they knew that his imprisonment was for Christ. The word is actually in Christos, that his imprisonment was in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson puts it best. He says this, he says, it was not long before the talk among the soldiers was quote the only chains that bind this man are the ones by which he is bound to Jesus Christ my question for you this morning is do the people around you know that you are different in the way that you respond to your adversity Do they know why you respond differently? That your imprisonment is in Christ? That your heart has been taken captive by Christ? That your joy is not in anything else but Christ? You rejoice in the Lord, and he's yours forever, and no one can take him away? The reality to the answer of these questions is this. Not always. What an opportunity to turn to God in repentance and and faith Embraces grace, and to shine a light of holiness in the midst of our adversity for gospel advancement. It wasn't just the guards. It says, and to all the rest. The gospel was hitting all the rest. Who's all the rest? Great question. Acts 28, verse 30 through 31 gives us insight into who all the rest were says, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Despite adversity, Paul continued to preach the gospel. And it wasn't preaching in the way that he maybe had hoped. He always wanted to get to Rome. Rome was like the epicenter. There was so much going around Rome. It was like DFW in the sense that, man, if you could get some people in Dallas and it just the gospel radiates out from there to all the suburbs, that would be powerful. Well, guess what? Paul's not preaching in the amphitheaters and the public arenas, open air under the stars and the sky and the sun in the way that he'd hoped as an evangelist. He has been confined to house arrest, and yet he keeps preaching, not to many crowds, but one on one to these guards with exactly what God's given him, and God knows exactly what he's doing, and the word's going out, and now all the rest are coming. I wanna see a man on fire for God. I wanna see a man who is a slave of Christ. I want to see a man who has joy in the midst of adversity. I want to hear about the peace that he has that is the peace of God that nothing can get him down. And so people were coming. And he was preaching and he was teaching and people were being saved and the gospel was advancing in the lost world through adversity. All that was happening there in in that little house, that holy house, It was advancing the gospel. And it, it, was, it wasn't just advancing the gospel through lost people that were taking it out. It was advancing the gospel through other believers who were hearing about what was happening. That brings me to a second point. Advancing the gospel through the church. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There is an increase of confidence in the Lord through what Paul was suffering among the believers who were hearing of it. They were having become confident in the Lord. And so it it brings us to a good question, which is this, what helps us to grow in confidence in the Lord? What helps you to grow in your trust in the Lord? I thought of three things that Biblically speaking, absolutely will grow our confidence in the Lord. The first is this, spending time with the Lord in his word, specifically, in his words. I'm going to take us back to the Old Testament real fast, to a classic text. Joshua chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. I'm going to read this. I want you to really lean in, pay attention to what I'm saying, and I'm going to try to unpack it as we walk through, okay? Verse 5 God speaking to Joshua, the transition of, of Joshua taking leadership, that, that's taken place. Moses is, is gone. It says, no man, God says to Joshua, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then here's a promise. I will never, I will, I will not leave you or forsake you. That's a promise we have in Christ. Jesus says at the end in the Great Commission, the end of Gospel of Matthew, he says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. In John chapter 10, he says, no one will snatch you from my hand. We will be in him, he will be in us. To the very end, he will not leave us or forsake us. And then after giving that promise of his presence with a believer, Joshua, he says this exhortation, be strong. And courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Listen, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. That's the word of God. Day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Verse 9 Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go house arrest or in the comfort of your home. You've got God's presence, you've got the promise of God's presence. In Christ. You've got the word of God to meditate on. You've got the exhortations in light of his presence and, and of abiding in the word that you are to be strong and courageous. He is to strengthen you through his presence and his promises and his word. If you and I want to grow in our faith and our confidence and our boldness and our witness for Christ Jesus, we need to abide in his word. I don't know how, how, I mean, it's sounding redundant at this point, but this is what I'm telling you is going to grow your confidence in mine the Word of God. We need more of the Word of God. Secondly, what's going to grow your confidence in the Lord? Spending time with the Lord in prayer. Have Him speak to you, and you speak to Him. Confidence is rising. Let's go to the New Testament, Acts chapter 4. The the context of Acts chapter 4, verse 29 through 31, is this. Peter and the disciples are turning to God in prayer after being threatened by the chief priests and scribes to be silent and to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. They say, and now, Lord Look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness, to hold the line while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with all boldness. Abide in prayer. Thirdly, you want to grow in confidence in the Lord? Spend time with Christian believers who are bold in their witness of the gospel. We need to spend time in Christian fellowship. We need more Christian fellowship. Verse 14 says, the, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, how? By my imprisonment. We need to hear testimonies of bold believers suffering for the sake of the gospel to encourage us, give us confidence in the Lord to do the very same thing. Man, I was, I was reading about Bunyan. You know, John Bunyan, the famous Puritan preacher, who's an excellent preacher, but he was taken out of preaching ministry uh, briefly. He was thrown in prison for preaching. And while he was in prison, people were literally coming around the prison just to listen. People inside the prison are getting saved. People outside the prison are coming and hearing the gospel and being saved. So they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put them in solitary confinement. Let's isolate him. We'll cut the head off of the gospel preacher. They will be silenced. Well, guess what he did during that isolation period? He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory on the pilgrimage of a Christian, which incorporates adversity, adversity. And how to endure and navigate adversity in Christ for his advancement of the gospel. That was like the the second most purchased book, second to only the Bible, for years and years and years. It's a great book. You should read it. But I just want you to see that just through that as an example, a real life example, you can't stop the gospel. You can't stop God. I've said it before. Nothing. Not even the gates of hell will stop God's church and the advancement of the gospel. They'll try. They won't succeed. How did Paul's imprisonment embolden believers? It almost seems obvious. I almost don't feel like I even have to say this, but let's just say it his faith was visible his faith put on clothes you could see his faith his faith was there in the prison it was communicating that he really believed the gospel like he he really believed that jesus christ had paid the penalty for his sin and the world's he really believed that this thing was done that the work was finished at the cross. He really believed that Christ raised from the dead bodily. He really believed that a resurrection was coming for Him and anyone else who put their faith in Him for eternal life. He really believed Christ was coming back. He really believed that judgment was coming. He really believed what the word said. He believed God. And he believed that God, having done what he did through Christ, was worthy of his life. He was worthy of death. He was worthy of it all. These believers were increasing in their confidence through the confidence of Paul in prison. What's the application for us? You want to grow in confidence. Abide in the word of God. Abide in prayer. Abide in one another. Fellowship with one another. And go out in fear and trembling together and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you suffer for that and you come back here on Sunday morning, we will rejoice with you that you experienced the rejection that the prophets of old experienced for preaching the truth. we full of love and courage that only comes from someone who's walked with God and has been filled with the Spirit, we'll rejoice with you. This increase of confidence, increased preaching, says they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. We don't need less fear, we need more love. Perfect love eradicates fear. Perfect love casts out fear, First John chapter 4. We need more love for God, for what he's done for us his love for us in Christ. We need more love for our neighbor. That fear just begins to to wither away. Not all of it. You still got a little bit, but you still advance the gospel even in the trembling. Paul didn't accomplish religious freedom in his imprisonment. I'm all for fighting for religious freedom. I'm all for it. We need Christians specifically their ministries in that space to fight for our freedom to pray in the middle of a football field and anything else all for religious freedom. But Paul didn't win religious freedom there. He did something better. I would argue. He showed believers and unbelievers that he was a free man in chains. That nothing could stop God from having his son proclaimed in all the earth. Do y'all remember that old animated Disney movie, Hercules? Y'all remember that? There's a scene where Hercules is fighting this like multi-headed dragon beast thing. And he's slicing off the heads of these these dragon beasts. And they're falling to the ground. And what happened? Two more heads would sprout out. So after a little bit, Hercules is thinking, that's not the best methodology to take down this beast, right? we got to come up with something different. This is not working. This is making it harder on me. That's what was happening to Paul. They thought that they had decapitated Paul. And what was happening? Preachers' heads were emerging like crazy. Even unbelievers were taking the gospel out. Our God is so wise. It was in adversity that the gospel was advancing in and through the church. And here's my third and final point for us this morning. Adversity did not stop Paul from advancing the gospel with pure joy. Advancing the gospel with pure joy. Look at verse 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. Knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Look at me. What then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. That's the disposition of Paul. People trying to get him down, not only from outside the church, but inside the church. And, and Paul goes, I'm rejoicing because the gospel is being proclaimed. This is a very interesting text right here. We expect the world to be against us. Jesus promised it. So we can just go back to the, the chapter and verse and go, okay, hostility, okay, persecution, all right, it's going to be tough, but thanks for giving us a heads up, Lord but when we, spirit, when we experience pushback from within the church, we don't expect that. All open-air street preachers are in agreement on this. Okay? I didn't send out a Barna you know, stat uh, request to find this out, but I'm pretty confident that they're in agreement. It is far more frustrating for an open-air preacher on the street to be belittled by believers for their evangelistic methodology than by unbelievers rejecting their message. They expect rejection from unbelievers. They expect pushback from them. But when believers try to pull them aside and say what you're doing is wrong and they're saying what I'm doing is confronting a world with the reality of their sin and the reality of a good God who sent his son to save them and that, that, that I'm calling them to repent and, and turn to this good God and savior with the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe in him and to flee from the wrath that's to come and they're experiencing pushback from other believers don't be that guy don't be that girl now if they're preaching a false gospel be that guy be that girl. And do it with gentleness and respect. But if they're preaching the gospel, maybe you join in. Maybe you pray for them. It hurts when your own people are against you. We know that there's, there's false teachers in this world. Again, Jesus promised there would be. There's going to be false teachers and false prophets until he returns. We expect that. And we know that there's going to be some true preachers of the Word of God. And we rejoice in that. What's happening here is is very interesting. We have people who are both preaching a true gospel message. The content is spot on. It is the gospel that both groups are preaching, both of these Christians. But it's a different motivation behind the the message that they're preaching. See, one is preaching From envy and rivalry, not from sincerity. And one is preaching from a sincere heart to see Christ magnified and exalted and worshiped in this world. They're both preaching orthodox messages, but some are against Paul and some are for Paul. It's hard to imagine being envious and having rivalry with Paul. You know, he's in prison, right? He's under house arrest. I don't really envy that, but it wasn't his position in prison that they envied, was it? It wasn't. It was his platform in ministry. Paul was greatly respected as an apostle of Christ Jesus because he was appointed by Jesus himself, and so they envied some of the notoriety that he had in ministry. I mean, they envied, I'm sure, some of the knowledge of the scriptures that Paul had, his ability to teach. They envied, I'm sure, some of the miracles that God did through Paul. I mean, Paul raised a brother from the dead after he fell out of a window, Eutychus. There was envy and rivalry. And I would just say, let's put a pause on on that situation and that context and that time and ask ourselves have we had envy and rivalry in our hearts as we've served the Lord Jesus Christ in ministry ourselves? Sure, we have envious of another brother or sister's platform and ministry, envious, having a heart of rivalry. The churches and church leaders not have a little bit of rivalry at times that that rises up in their heart, this competitive spirit of, oh yeah, let's advance the kingdom of God, but we really want to advance our name too and our church in this city. And I'm kind of hating the fact that you've got more people going to your church than to our church. And I would just say, that's ridiculous. It happens, but we should repent of that. And we should rejoice when there's conversions happening and when people are entering into local bodies all over our, our region that are preaching the true gospel. Even if they deviate in some theological positions than us. Verse 17, look at verse 17. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So, you gotta ask, who are these people? They're, they're, they're envious, they're, there's rivalry, there's selfish ambition, there's lack of sincerity. Who are they? Some have speculated that they are the, what it's called, the Judaizers that we see in chapter 3 of Philippians. I don't think it is. Many other people do not think it is either. Why? The Judaizers were not preaching an orthodox, sound gospel. So, Paul would never commend a false gospel being preached. Matter of fact, Galatians chapter 1 says, let them be accursed for preaching a false message. So it's not them. More likely, it's other believers who have the gospel. They don't like Paul. That's it. How does Paul respond? And we'll close. Verse 18. How does Paul respond? Joy. Pure joy. What then? only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's not even phased that they don't like him. Again, Galatians chapter 1, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I was seeking the approval of man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. He's made up his mind. I'm not going to be a people pleaser. I'm going to seek the pleasure of Christ. And so, although he doesn't have favor from everybody in life and in ministry, he doesn't care. Paul's not losing any sleep. What then? Only that in every way the gospel is being preached, and I'm rejoicing in the preaching of the gospel. Why? Because Paul embraced the same thing that John the Baptist embraced. Man, let me decrease that Christ may increase. Let me become less that Christ may become more. Paul and his response here is a model, not only to the Philippians, it's a model for us in our ministry endeavors, all doing different things in ministry to to manifest the manifold wisdom of God in this city, McKinney, and the surrounding region. Let's do it from a pure heart, let's do it with joy. The Philippians were deeply concerned with their former pastor, their church planting pastor. Is he okay? I mean, they didn't have Facebook. They didn't have email. They didn't have cell phone service. They they didn't have communication like we did. They're, They're anxiously waiting to hear an update on how Paul's doing. Is he okay? We love him. Is he all right? Has the trial happened? Has he been killed? They were grieved by his circumstances, but Paul wasn't. And he's writing them to let them know, I I, I still have joy. It's okay. He knew that God was using his adversity to advance the gospel. And he wanted the Philippians to know it. Part of my testimony is that after graduating college, I was a professing believer. Thought I was a Christian. But after graduating college, I did the appropriate thing. I looked for a job. Found a job. Took the job. Moved to Roanoke, Virginia living in the valley of Roanoke, Virginia, and it was the valley of my life. It was the beginning of rock bottom for Arch McIntosh. I was completely alone. No family, no friends, no familiarity. Never been to Virginia before that. In that season of isolation, God began to pull back some layers of my life and expose that I was godless. Godless. I was empty. I was not walking with God. Matthew 7 says that many on that day when he comes will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this or that? Did I not attend church? Did I not serve in ministry? And he will say to many on that day, I never knew you. And he would have told me the same thing. If I had died there in that season, he didn't know me and I didn't know him. Not in Christ. I was outside of Christ. I was still trusting in my righteousness. I'm a decent guy, some of the thoughts. And during that season, he revealed, no, you're not. You're a wretched sinner, and you need a Savior, and I've sent my son. and His righteousness is sufficient for your salvation. Take refuge in him, and you will be saved. I did. I fled to him. Before that, I was increasingly anxious, severe depression, I had suicide ideation. I was, I was thinking as I was driving from one business meeting to another about turning my car off the highway and into some trees. It was the lowest point in my life, friends. But there at rock bottom, and only there, was God able to rebuild my life on the solid foundation of the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and the gospel. He had to make known to me my depravity before He could make known to me the riches of glory in Christ. The mercy that is in Christ for sinners like me. And after I'd gone through that season and after I'd come out of it, born again, new creation, joy of the Lord, no longer seeking temporary moments of fleeting happiness outside of Christ, but rejoicing in Christ, I had a family member that said this to me. He said, this is after he's, he's hearing all this stuff, and he loves me, and I love him, and he, and he just told me, he said, gosh, I'm so sorry for what you went through. If we had just waited a little longer, you could have found a better job in, in a different city. Maybe you had some friends and family there. Your circumstances could have been different, and this wouldn't have happened to you, and I legitimately, I just, I told him, I said, man, I am so glad that what happened to me happened to me. I would not have known Christ otherwise. I'm confident in that. And he would not have known me in a saving relationship. I'm confident of that. He had to take me there. I was so stubborn. He had to take me there and show me the joy of the Lord in the grace that's in Christ through adversity. Our fellowship, our koinonia, our partnership is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not just that, it's in the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing here, that's what we're doing later, and that's what we'll be doing until we come back next Sunday morning and John Woodruff preaches a message from Isaiah. And we will continue to work hard together to hold one another accountable to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in fear and trembling and great rejoicing until Christ comes. We need to see our adversity through a different lens, the sovereignty of God. We need to see the people around us through a different lens, separated from God, lost people separated from God, dying people who are going to perish and go to hell. We've got to see ourselves through a different lens. Servants of Christ Jesus, bond servants, slaves of Christ. And we need to examine our motives as we serve him. Are we serving him in purity, from a pure heart? Are we seeking to advance the gospel or advance ourselves? And do we have joy in the midst of it? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the peace of God in our adversity. We pray that you would provide this for your glory and our comfort in those moments. We pray that the watching world would be stunned that their jaws would drop to the floor as they see it, and they would ask us, how are you still joyful? Thank you for the opportunities ahead of us in our adversity. Give us boldness to leverage those moments for the gospel advancement. Help us say to them, my joy is in Christ, and He has promised to never leave me, or forsake me. And though I lose everything in this lifetime, I will never lose him, nor him lose me. Amen.